Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, what's something frivolous that just inherently makes your life better? So, this is going to sound completely absurd, but but I, I watch a lot of stuff for uh, the podcast, um, a lot of stuff uh, in just in my personal life and, and for my day job that is very kind of highbrow, requires a lot of focus. And uh, I don't watch stuff necessarily to switch my brain off, as it were, you know. But I, I have started finding a weird rabbit hole of things that I find just soothing. The way some people watch, like, ASMR or something. Um, the thing that I found uh, that I do enjoy when I really need to relax, there are... I love finding YouTubers who have, like, 50 views or less on their video who are reviewing niche shit. Like, guys who are just going, like, oh, I'm going to tell you about, I'm going to review this robot vacuum that I bought. And the, my favorite, uh, I'm not going to say the name because, quite frankly, I don't know anything about uh, these people. They could have horrendous politics or anything like that. So I don't want to endorse it. But I came across this dude who every video is just him. It starts with him in his van going, you know, all right, everybody, um, you know, uh, it's DT time. You know what DT time means, right? Dollar Tree, baby. Yeah, yeah. We're going to go see what DVDs and Blu-rays this Dollar Tree has. And then he goes in, goes through, and finds all the new DVDs and Blu-rays that Dollar Tree gets in, which is important because Dollar Tree has started getting in, like, Magnolia releases and MGM films and shit like that. He'll buy whatever he doesn't already have at the Dollar Tree and then just go home and then get on camera and go, I watched The Penguin Goes to the Zoo, and uh, that was pretty all right. And I, I don't ever want him to have strong opinions. I just want him to be going through this stuff and going, I bought Sneezing Baby Panda. If you got kids, that's good. And like it, it never has a huge amount of energy. Everything about it I find so immensely relaxing. So in terms of frivolous entertainment, just watching people talk into a camera about the Blu-rays they found at dollar stores, delightful. All right, so this one is uh, honestly, uh, it was actually pretty simple for me to kind of pick because it is something that's been uh, a more recent addition to my life, but it was one that I grew up with. And I feel like it's kind of like the definition of frivolous. Uh, it's it's wrestling. You know, wrestling's fun. Wrestling's great. It's an element, it's an, uh, a, a, like a side subcategory within storytelling and everything. And we all love stories and all of that stuff. But it is, it is at the end of the day, um, frivolous it doesn't amount to anything it's it's a it's an in the moment uh endorphin hit watching uh these insanely talented physical specimens do these crazy moves and the ones that are good at talking on the mic and doing stories that's like an added benefit but at the end of the day it is kind of a one and done sort of thing for as much as there's like the wwe network with the storage of all these past wrestling matches and everything so much of wrestling is about being in the moment 
and kind of just having it, enjoying it. You know, if you're watching it with friends, you know, having a beer, you know, blah, 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 whatever, you know, hanging out. It's not something that is really going to change the world in any real way. Um, I feel like even the people in wrestling, uh, especially in the newer generation, they know, like, they have to have other things in their life. That's why there's these guys have, like, their YouTube channels with, uh, you know, where they play video games or whatever. You know, it's 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 frivolous. It's fun as hell. I love it. I'm glad I got back into it. But at the end of the day, I, I, of all the things I do, you know, I watch movies, I read books, I write stories and, and all this stuff. Wrestling is ultimately the most frivolous because it is the one that's supposed to, when it's over and done and you go to bed, when Dynamite ends on Wednesday, you know, it's on to the next thing. It's on to, okay, well, what's going to happen on Rampage? Great. Awesome. Uh, so yeah, I think wrestling is the... And and it does generally make my life better. I, I every time I get to Wednesday, I know that like it's more than just like oh it's hump day. It's half the half the week's halfway over. We're getting close to the weekend. It's really like okay, so we got dynamite on Wednesday. We got rampage on Friday. You know, this week we're gonna end up having battle of the belts on Saturday. Sometimes there's pay per views on Sunday. It's always like this is when the week gets good for me. So uh, wrestling is a uh, yeah my my my. You know, and on Monday nights I get to watch raw until cody's stuff is done and then turn it off you fool <laughs> every year since 1989 the library of congress has selected 25 films to add to the national film registry the criteria the films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, Maynard Bangs from the Reels of Justice podcast throws down the gavel for 1941 Sullivan's Travels. Our guest today is one of the hosts of the Reels of Justice podcast. Uh, Maynard Bangs joins us today to talk about Sullivan's Travels. Maynard, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You've been on our show now. It's a pleasure to, to do you a solid right back. Absolutely. Well, I'm so glad. This is something we, we talked I think when I was wrapping up uh, discussing another classic film on your show uh, that I'm sure Preston Sturgis would adore, uh, Wild Wild West, when I was talking about that, I mentioned what the show was, and, and, and you were one of the people who were very, was like, oh, that sounds, that sounds cool as hell, so I'm very glad we could uh, get you on for this one. Yeah, I think at one point in time, I think we'll get everybody on eventually. Yeah. But starting with me is the best, because I'm the best one. <laughs> yeah, I sent you over the list, and I think it's interesting. You said you were you were unfamiliar with this film before this. Is that correct? I, yeah, no, I've never seen or heard of it um, prior to this. So, But the synopsis sounded interesting enough. So I thought, there's got to be something to talk about. <laughs> We'll talk a little bit more at the end about Reels of Justice, but as you alluded, I was I was on there. You guys uh, do something uh, in, in a similar vein to what we do here, which is obviously you guys are getting to the heart of with these films that are either considered classics or considered terrible. You guys are focusing on kind of, do they really merit that reputation, right? But yeah, no, basically, and we do it in a, a court format, and the reason for that is is each side then is represented. Right. So the movie gets a lawyer for its pros and its cons. And so I think that a lot of that is looking at that every movie has something good and something bad you can talk and elaborate on. 
Um, and, and the spokesman's job is to do that, basically, the lawyer. And obviously here, you know, uh, our mission statement has always been like, we're here to talk about not if, but why these selected films matter. And I think that that ethos that we're approaching is so much a factor in this film, which is not just a movie about movies, but a, a movie about the purpose of entertainment and why things that some people might write off as frivolous do indeed have value. So I think that it's it's really great that that you picked this one given what you guys do on your show. I think it's it's a great confluence there. Yeah, and and it was intentional. <laughs> and it's pretty fitting for our show. Yeah, absolutely. Considering the movie that we're doing today. Yes. Um so without any further ado, before we uh get into what we thought about it uh, and why we think it's worthwhile, let's talk about why the registry picked it. Uh, here's what the Library of Congress had to say. Director Preston Sturgis is quoted as saying that Sullivan's Travels came about as, quote, the result of an urge to tell some of my fellow film rights that they were getting a little too deep dish and to leave the preaching to the preachers. Joel McCree, in one of his most memorable roles, plays a successful Hollywood film director who, having helmed only fluffy comedies, decides to take an important social drama and takes to the open road to experience the seamier side of America for himself. Though initially discouraged by his studio bosses, Robert Warwick and Porter Hall, they scheme to turn Sullivan's Odyssey into a publicity stunt. Along the way, he meets a disheartened wannabe starlet, Veronica Lake, who's giving up on Hollywood and headed home. From there, hilarity, tempered with romance and pathos, rules the day. So that's what the National Film Registry had to say. Now, Maynard, you said you hadn't seen this before. Uh, Tom, you when was the first time you saw Sullivan's Travels? Uh, watched it last year um, when we were preparing to launch season two, uh, you know, last year. And, uh, you know, there was the nice new criterion about it. And I, you know, watched it and hung out and, uh, you know, let the uh, Preston Sturges gold just wash over me. And then... Uh, I loved it the first time. I thought it was great. I could see why it was put in the registry. And uh, I'm just glad we could finally talk about it, you know. So yeah. uh, what was what was your first time, Mike? Like, I, I saw Sullivan's Travels a, a good long while ago because it was on one of the AFI lists. Um, I know it was on the comedies list, and I think it was in one of their top 100s. So Yeah, it is. Yeah, I, I I saw it. Was it is it on both of them or just one? Uh, I was looking at it last night because I was pretty shocked by it. Let's see if I can quickly find. Uh, it's on AFI's laughs. It's number yeah. thirty nine out of a hundred. It's on AFI's cheers twenty five out of a hundred. Interesting. Uh, and then it's out of their uh, just their hundred movies. 10th anniversary edition it's number 61 yeah i remember when they did the 10th anniversary a bunch of stuff went off and a bunch of stuff got added on um so this was one of those ones that popped up because i remember finding the original list in like middle school and trying to seek those out and then they put out the new list 10th anniversary and suddenly there were these new titles sullivan's travels is when i got around to i think freshman year of college and it really kind of it was it was an important film for me because when i started college freshman year Hand to God, I mean, Tom can attest, we went to school together. Tom, uh, I was very um, I was very much a Sullivan, right? I was very socially conscious, but I was yeah. also very highbrow and pretentious. And this oh, is yeah. entirely true. <laughs> I remember saying to a classmate of mine who was like my cohort at the time, saying, I don't really uh, see the need to make happy films if there's still suffering in the world. 
which now I'm just like, shut the fuck up. But at the time I was like, that's, you know, my line. So seeing this movie um, really hit home for me. Um, it, it was very moving. And then uh, I revisited again. I think Bill Hader was doing this Criterion Closet video and talked about just like how important this movie is. Because it's a great film to put you in your place. Uh, it's a great humbling movie about the power of art, but also the extent of what art can do, I think, in a very good way. I mean, it's it's honestly, I think, so far and maybe going to be for a long time the most timely and relevant movie we're going to kind of talk about on this show because uh, we're all podcasters and we're all, I, I assume, part of film Twitter. This discussion is every fucking week about what's a real movie, what's, like, worthwhile... Oh, these stupid Marvel movies are taking time and money away from what it means to be a cow. Um, <laughs> which, like, guys, I'm sorry. If Kevin Feige went from five movies a year to four movies a year, Disney's not making first cow. Like, I'm sorry. It's not happening. And Is that where just... like, a cow becomes, like, president or moves into the White House? I mean, uh, in fairness, okay, that is, okay, that is probably a movie they made in the 70s. Let's be yeah, okay, let me retract. Excellent. Okay, let me retract. It might be a movie that Disney would make if it would, if it's what Maynard suggested, mm-hmm. but it is not going to be, you know, a Kelly Reichert. They're not going to bankroll a Kelly Reichert movie. I mean, like, guys, relax. Like, it, I'm sorry. It just occurred to me that that's basically the Shaggy DA. They kind yeah. of did that movie. Yeah, pretty close. Yeah, but I mean, this is stuff we're talking about all the time now, where people just keep forgetting. Like, I know one of the big lines Ebert once said was, is that movies are empathy machines. But I also feel like people seem to forget that movies were made to be entertainment machines. Not to say that there's no room for art or just like art house movies, but also like art within our entertainment. But sometimes I just want to see Michael Bay do two pounds of coke before every setup figure out that drones exist and have an ambulance just like massacre some cholos in los angeles that's all sometimes guys that's all i want to distract myself from what's happening in the ukraine like i'm sorry yeah i mean i think that the other thing too though with this that i think is so important is that the people who joel mccray's character who sullivan is trying to help in this film that he claims he wants to speak to and he wants to help He's so detached from, right? Yeah. Um, that every step along the way, people are telling him, I don't need, no, this is okay. Yeah, this is good. I don't need this. Um, now, maybe, He can't I, even no. become them, no matter no. how hard he tries. He's unable to become them. Like he said, he's, he's forcefully, constantly pushed back to Hollywood, right? And, and he can't escape it. Or he just tries to walk into some diner and he runs into the most beautiful woman in the world who buys him eggs. Uh, you know, the, no matter what he does, he can't, even when he gets into a sort of the jam at the end, unlike every other guy in the chain gang, all he needs to do is get his picture in the paper mm-hmm. and his problems are solved again. You know, he can never be as, as hopeless and trapped as any of them are. And it's even like before he figures out the scheme with the newspaper, it's, he still just like, doesn't get his situation yeah he just still like he, he at no point does he ever get the things he thinks about or the way he behaves is not how like people that don't have 
things to worry about worry about like when he's on the train with veronica lee and he looks at the two hobos and he's like so what do you think about the labor situation and they literally just get up and walk away because like look this what this guy's not one of us what is he fucking kidding me like go away it's it's so funny because i watched recently and i, I won't I, I i'll bring it back but i recently watched for the first time bound for glory have either of you guys seen that it's the the hal no, ashby no. biopic about woody guthrie uh, oh, David yeah, Carradine no, plays Woody Guthrie. Uh, I wasn't sure. I was There's no cows it. in it. Not uh, maybe one or two, because the whole thing oh. is it's him in the Dust Bowl, so maybe one or two. But no, it's it's really interesting because it's it's it's. I mean, look, it's a Hal Ashby film, and it's it's from the seventies. It's very aimless, uh, intentionally so. But the one thing I find so interesting in that is that it's depicting you know the the American labor movement that Woody Guthrie songs were obviously a part of. But there's this great moment where they've gathered all of the uh, the 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 people working in the fields, you know, all of the the poor downtrodden exploited workers into this hall and the two people who are supposed to be leading the unionization meeting are there in like a sharp suit and dress and they're talking very scholarly and very just kind of friends and brothers if you read this journal you'll see and the crowd doesn't care and the crowd's like turning on them and then Woody Guthrie gets up with his guitar and starts singing a folk song that's just, I'm sticking with the union, I'm sticking, and suddenly, like, people are on board again. And I think that that, that is something that Preston Sturgis, who himself was a, a, a child of privilege, I don't know if you guys know much about Preston Sturgis in his life. No, not he, much. He grew up, I mean, his mother was an artist, he grew up in Europe. His mother spent time uh, involved with dance troops and the theater, and uh, his mother was at one time the lover of uh, Alistair Crowley, the nice occultist. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 You know, that little chestnut. Like all our grandmas. Yeah. <laughs> but um, and he was Sturgis grew up surrounded by classical music and the opera and boarding schools and all that. You know, he uh, he described it as as being surrounded by the upper class and artists and the idle rich. And that's kind of why throughout all of his films, they're always played as dopes and phonies. Like, a lot mm. of his films deal with class. Um, his very first movie is, uh, well, he's, he wrote a number of scripts. In fact, interestingly, the first script he ever wrote solo, uh, I want to make sure I pull up the title here properly, that his first solo screenplay was called The Power and the Glory, which was a was loosely based on the life of C.W. Post, who, of course, uh, his compound where he lived was later turned into the college where Tom and I went to school. But it was about loosely based on the life of C.W. Post. And here's an interesting thing. It was loosely based on the life of C.W. Post and about how his greed and his industrialism kind of uh, made him, uh, you know, uh, cold-hearted and unlovable. And it was told in this really interesting narrative framing device um, which used flashbacks and people reflecting on his life uh, while his life played out. Uh, it's a really interesting convention. Interestingly enough, totally apropos of nothing, his buddy Herman Mankiewicz uh, later used a much a very similar device in uh, Citizen Kane. So, uh, did he steal it from Sturgis? Uh, Pauline Kael thinks maybe so. he borrowed it. But yeah, he, he you know. Um, nevertheless, he so that was his first screenplay, and his screenplays were so popular that he was able to convince the studio to let him actually direct one of his own scripts which was such an uncommon thing at the time that there's a quote here. Uh, someone uh, notably wrote in one of their letters, 
They let a certain writer here direct his own picture, and he made such a go of it that there may be a different feeling about that soon. That quote comes from F. Scott Fitzgerald. They never let him direct, though. F. Scott Fitzgerald? Yeah. No, not 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 Scott. Not that he would have done a particularly good job because he would have kept going, Zelda, what are we doing here? <laughs> All right, this one was my idea. We're going to do this. You know, yeah, let me just disparage one of America's most celebrated writers. Um, the point is, oh, he, oh, he can handle it. <laughs> he holds a grudge. Watch yeah. out. His uh, his first film that he directs is called The Great McGinty, uh, which is this great satire that's basically about this unemployed hobo who gets roped into a vote rigging scheme and becomes so good at rigging elections that he himself gets elected but the moment he tries to act like an honest politician society tosses him out Mm. so preston was letting us know how he felt right off the bat then he does um christmas in july which is a nice tight 60 minutes we love a 60 minute movie here a plus which is uh, a satire of the business world, which is about a guy who the Maxwell House Coffee Company is holding a slogan contest, and whoever wins, whoever gets the best names, the best slogan for their coffee, uh, wins twenty five thousand dollars, which at the time was a lot of money. Uh, I mean, it still is a lot of money, but you know, yeah, it's a good amount of money now. Yeah, but Crazy you know, in, of money then. in the thirties, yeah. Uh, and his pitch that he comes up with is so bad, which is. Um, uh, if you can't sleep at night, it's not the coffee, it's the bunk. <laughs> right. So, But somebody pranks him, sends him a telegram making him think he won. Word gets around the office, they think he won, and suddenly all the high-up executives are going, it's not the coffee, it's the bunk. Brilliant! He's a genius! He's great, and he's, you know, he climbs the corporate ladder. So when we get to the point where we're at this film now, um, you know, uh, Sullivan's Travels, where at this point, he's already made it clear that he's, that one, he thinks the the wealthy and the higher-ups are out of touch uh, and easily susceptible to delusion. And two, in those other films, in The Great McGinty and in Christmas in July, the guy, the central character we have is kind of the schmuck who gets roped into things. Yeah, and he's the and he's a member of the lower class who fish out of water moves up to the upper crust, and in here we have the inversion. Yes, and we have the upper class guy who needs to slip down into the lower world that he doesn't necessarily belong in. But compared to the two you just described, I think Sullivan, while he he calls himself a phony many times and he yearns to be something he's not, he has a lot of integrity and does really stick to his guns he does seem to know what he's doing he's not a complete you know clod like the uh the coffee executives who who are just yes men totally spineless his producer buddies are for the most part but he himself has lots of integrity i think that's in part because i mean you know a lot of time i kind of i do get tired of how often people try and pull the line of like the director was really writing about themselves in this but really Sullivan is a stand-in for for Sturgis and his own kind of self-criticisms in a way and his own observations of like sort of there but for the grace of God go I right yeah and I think that that's so interesting that he in this third at bat just kind of brings a level of introspection and also I think turns the camera on his industry in a way that I, even though he was taking shots at directors, you know, which was more permissible, uh, 
he still did it in a way that I think made some people of the time uncomfortable. Uh, we've seen this a lot. We did Sunset Boulevard in the first season. And when we ask why didn't Sunset Boulevard win all the Oscars, you'd think it would. Part of that is just like, right, this was a movie that told everybody in the Oscar ceremony room, this is you. You're all terrible to this woman. And I think that this is a similar thing where it's, it is kind of, it is, it isn't a movie that is made like McGinty or Christmas in July, or even, you know, other films that he did, like um, The Lady Eve, which comes out the same year. It isn't a movie that is about the little guy getting one over on the big folks. This is a movie that is directly aimed at these people and and trying to take them down a peg, which I think is so interesting. But but it does feature that optimism I mentioned, and I'm wondering oh, yes. if that's because of the place he was at his time. I mean, he was up and coming during the first two movies. I think he saw himself as the lower class guy, maybe compared to some of the richer bigwigs. I know you mentioned he was already he was born into luxury, yeah, but I'm sure not to the level of everyone he sees around him. And I and I'm wondering if by Sullivan's travels, now that he sees himself up there. Uh, is he trying to say, well, some of us do have integrity up here uh, on the on the uh, on the pedestal that we live in? There's some of us who who, while we don't understand what it's like to live down there, we'd like to. Well, I think that's interesting. You you bring that up. That's a great point because it also indicates that I think part of it is that Sturgis is not just speaking to us through Sullivan. He's also speaking to us through Veronica Lake's character, because I think that Veronica Lake is such a great force in this film, not just that she's very funny and she's she's very good and it's remarkable for how old she was at the time you know how how young she was at the time and also the fact that she was pregnant while doing this you know and she's pulling off this amazing performance but i think that what veronica lake's character represents in a way is kind of she sees the good in him and you're right he does have integrity his integrity is misplaced in a way his intent is he has good intentions but he's also trying to at the end of the day, the question that he's forced to ask himself and, and that he doesn't confront until the end is, is he really doing this for other people, right? Yeah. Is he really doing it or is he doing it because he wants to feel it? Like, because there's that great moment at the beginning that I love that, you know, when Tom talked about how timely this film is, reminds me of so much internet discourse now around film, which is when the producers are telling him, people don't want to see this artsy European movie. And he goes, oh, I got a fifth week at the music hall. It died in Pittsburgh. What do they know in Pittsburgh? They know what they like. Which is every time you get into an argument with somebody online who tries to go like, you know, nobody is saying X, Y, Z. And you go, here's somebody saying X, Y, Z. They don't count. If they know what they like, why do they live in Pittsburgh? Yes, yes. Uh, But but there's also this element of, yeah, where he kind of wants to see himself as that martyr. Whereas you have that moment where he's going to walk around and give every bum he sees five bucks. <laughs> yes. Right. He could have donated that money through to the causes that would have actually probably helped some of these people, uh, given it to food kitchens, et cetera. Uh, instead, all that money's probably going straight to the liquor store. Yeah. So probably the liquor store owners having a great time. Uh, but it's because he wants to kind of strut around and be the hero, you know, giving down to all those people. Um, and you see what happens to him. Which, I mean, again, I feel like is part of what Preston Sergis is really good about in this movie is the not romanticization of, like, being poor or homeless. Like, he doesn't paint... Like, he gives a lot of scenes where middle-class people, like the guy who gives him the free donut, 
or just even like some of the homeless people like that they're not animals or whatever but yeah when he's handing out five dollars it's like no guys like being poor can bring out some pretty bad shit in people like you're walking around like hobo alley at least one of these fucking guys is going to try to beat the shit out of you and take your money and then like an imbecile stand in front of a train like yeah. like the guy in austin powers stop it's like, it runs this way runs that way like why you, 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 <laughs> even you if a, you think it's gonna go either way just run in a straight direction yeah and also it's it's money you're not like trying to save like a baby i don't know a baby or like a cake where it's gonna or get swooshed the first cow yeah, yeah the first were, cow yeah we're really it's taking not like, it to the first cow tonight yeah, fuck. I'm fuck trying that cow, to get man, it really. made. You know, <laughs> I ate some my... goddamn cow today. You've so got to, oh, you've got a main. I'm sorry, we should say Maynard's got a pitch with Disney this week, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. You're going into that first cow, the, the the first cow <laughs> Disney Plus miniseries. Yes, exactly. Brilliant. And and wait okay. till the whole the all the cabinet and everyone once uh, once they get into a few accidents and the cow through the chain of of command eventually gets made president. Wait, hang on. So this is, this is just season three of diary of a future president. It's just dairy of a future president. There it is. Dairy of a future. future. But in any event, we were talking, you know, with, with uh, the, the homeless panel. I think one thing that's interesting about this with, with the way Preston Sturgis depicts, you know, underprivileged people in this film, he basically gives the thesis statement of the film to a Butler and he gives it to him in the first act. And one thing I think is so interesting is something that old Hollywood movies used to do a lot that I kind of have come to admire is that you watch a lot of older Hollywood films with, with much more rigid and structured scripts. They will often straight up give you the message of the film in act one, and then you watch it play out over two and three. Um, as opposed to like now, obviously like everybody that's writing a script kind of thinks like, well, you can't reveal the message or you can't reveal whatever the thesis until the end and do so. Like, you've proven it. Yeah, and do some like Ari Aster ten minute monologue at the end. Except, but... except for first cow. <laughs> That's true. But we are the get movie the starts and you see right out of the beginning. Uh, I, I, I go into first cow and I go, "There's a cow," <laughs> and it will be delivered by a butler. <laughs> but the idea is like it. It you know he gives that monologue and he talks about which is such a great line where he says like you know only the rich are interested in knowing what it's like to be poor. It's not a lack of something. It's not a lack of wealth. It's a disease. And what I think is so interesting is the way that he depicts the underprivileged in this film and the poor in this film is is like a disease, which is some people, you know, people have different symptoms and different reactions. And you can't paint with a broad brush and utterly ignore the poor, but you also can't do this thing where you go into the, the camp and kind of just assume, like, I'm going to bring bales of money, and the poor, who are all good gentlemen, will understand, like, you know, like, this is a thing I, I go off on this a lot when it comes to movies, which is the kind of movies I can't stand, including a 2018 Best Picture nominee. The kind of movies I can't stand are the movies that I, I write off as kind of feeling like, ah, the quiet dignity of the poor's. Where, like, the movies where it's essentially clearly written by a rich person who is going, like, these rich people fritter away worrying about nonsense. And the poors. There, these poor simple devils. They only have the simplest concerns. And it's like, come on, man. What 2018 movie? Roma. Oh. That was 2018? Fuck. Yes, it was 2018 because it lost to Green Book for Best Picture. Anyway, this is is the stuff that's lodged in my brain. Point is, like, I I always feel that, and I think that you're right, you know, Sturgis does such a great job with kind of, if anything, 
the movie that Joel McRae's character, that Sullivan, thinks he's going to make is the third act of this movie. For the first two acts, Sullivan is living a screwball comedy. Mm -hmm. For the first two acts, even though he's, you know, he's got that scene in the car with Veronica Lake where he's writing off all these, you know, oh, and the guy has a big sneeze. What happens later? He falls in the hay and has a big sneeze. You know, he has the Pratt falls. He has the screwball stuff. But then when he goes, when he's so determined at Doggett and he goes and he gets essentially a melodrama plot for the third act, there aren't a lot of jokes in the third act compared to the first two. He is living in this kind of social realist drama, and he realizes this this sucks. I don't want to I don't want to live this. I don't want to experience this. Let me watch Pluto fall on flypaper, you know? Yeah, but but it's such a weird switch too when we get to that third act, right? When I mean when he hits that guy with a rock, I mean that's a side that we never see of Solomon before. Yeah. We don't see a short temper from him at all. It seems to come suddenly really out of nowhere and then and you've got like the lucky coincidental thing that he kind of loses his memory for a bit but gets it back at the right time to kind of save himself so there's it may not be a screwball comedy but it's it's not it's also not the most serious tragedy in the world necessarily and i think it's interesting you point out that we get to see that violent side of him because i think that that's so important because he isn't truly poor until that moment because nobody, I mean, yes, the guy in the diner gives him the donut because he feels, you know, bad for the guy. And he's like, I'm not going to get any richer. But beyond that, like, he's surrounded by reporters. Him and Veronica Lake get a shower if they need it. You know, there's always somebody looking out for him. And including in those moments, though, too, right? That's why That's why when you say he can't become one of them, he's got this horseshoe up his ass. I mean, how many poor guys stumble into a diner and get ham and eggs bought for them by beautiful women. How yeah. many stumble into another diner and they just with no money and they just give them donuts. I mean, this guy isn't giving donuts to everybody who comes, you know, he, something told him to give it to this guy. Yeah. Uh, but I think him hitting the guy with the, you know, the guy on the train with the rock, I think is so great because it shows the, the violence and the lashing out that, that we see amongst, you know, people is not, it's not to say in his kind of way of looking at things that he would just go like, well, if he had money, he wouldn't do this. It's not about that, but it is about that circumstance that like you can be pushed to that brink. He reaches a breaking point that in all of his masquerading as a poor person, he never gets near because well, yeah. until he has the safety net taken away from him, truly taken away from him, he can never understand life. Well, it's 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 about the it's about desperation. I mean, yeah, he's got a horseshoe up his ass the whole time, but taking that crack to the head, he loses basically what makes him him. He he ends up looking like a mumbling, stuttering, cross-eyed freak that this guy just assumes is a bum because he found him sleeping on a train, and he gets treated with the utmost disrespect. Where the guy could have just been like, "All right, dude, just get out of here." whatever it's fine but the guy had to be an aggressive hard-on and in his desperate state the only time he's in a desperate state up until that point he lashes out and i think that's kind of a big point of what uh you know sturges is saying is that you know the whole time he's he's cosplaying being homeless but really you're not homeless until you feel that first desperation until you feel somebody looking at you like you're less than human, that you could be treated like dog shit just because you had the misfortune of falling asleep on a train for too long. Like, 
Right. I think I think the key there is that he's powerless at that moment. Yeah. And I think that's what he's lashing back at is and this is maybe one of those moments where he's not the nicest guy is it's kind of a, how dare you? How, uh-huh. Do you know yeah. who I am? You're not mm-hmm. going to push me. Uh, and, and he lashes out with violence because that's his easiest recourse there. Um, and he doesn't stop to think of the consequences at first, but it's a, I'll show you who's boss kind of a moment. It's a bad look for Sullivan um, yeah. for sure, because all he had to do was walk away and leave, but he couldn't, he couldn't stand being pushed around. He's used to getting his way. Well, I mean, it also it's compounded with the newspaper scheme where he goes, you know, guys in my position in Hollywood, they don't go to jail for stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Just straight up admitting that, like, yeah, if you got money, if you got power, if you got any sort of recognition, you're the kind of guy whose face can end up in a newspaper. You're not going to jail for beating the shit out of some service guy at a at a train station. Which I do yeah. want to acknowledge. Um, one thing that I've come to love watching a lot of Sturgis films in prep for this Sturgis is really a pioneer because you watch older comedies and the sincere moments are sincere. You know, we're not that far removed. Uh, You know, we're only like 20 years removed from guys like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd pioneering the idea of infusing sincerity into your comedies. But when you watch a Chaplin, a Keaton, a Lloyd, the sincere moments are sincere. And then there's comedy moments. I think Lloyd occasionally can, can undercut it a bit. Sturgis is very good at throwing in little gags to me. I mean, he, they, they, I, many people are quoted as saying that Preston Sturgis brought irony to American film. He's very good about, you guys talked about that scene where Joel McRae is talking about like getting his face in the paper, right? And he's talking to that other guy going, yeah. well, who gets their face in the paper? And anybody else would have just written that scene. And that would have been the point of the scene is he figures out if he uh, confesses to murder, he'll get his name in the paper. But there is a one-off joke where the old man's sitting next to him, and he, when he says, he goes, oh, I, I knew a fellow who was a murderer who got his name in the paper, and then offhandedly just goes, they called him the blowtorch killer. Yeah. Never acknowledged What a great line. <laughs> it's so fucking yeah. funny. And even, I didn't catch this the first time. I, I rewatched it with commentary. Uh, if anybody has the criterion of Sullivan's Travels, Highly recommend on the commentary track is Michael McKeon, Christopher Guest, and Noah Baumbach. So real interesting uh, array of people talking. But they acknowledge there's this beautiful scene in the movie that I think is is shot wonderfully. And if you're just watching it, you know, to watch it, you just know this is a beautiful scene, which is when Joel McRae and Veronica Lake are in the homeless encampment. They go walking by the water, right? And they walk past some trees, and there's an opening in the trees and the, the, the moonlight is bouncing off the water, and it's rippling a bit, and they have their arm around each other. You guys remember this shot? Yep. And it's a beautiful shot. Did either of you guys notice anything during that sequence? No. No. <laughs> As they're walking past the trees, a pair of legs is dangling from one of the trees, and it is unclear, is this a drunk who fell asleep? Did someone hang themselves? They don't stay on it long enough for you to even figure it out. But just that during this supposedly sweet moment that in any other movie is just a sweet moment, there is a pair of legs dangling from a tree. What a good bit. Was it one of the munchkins? Well, that's the thing. Like, you do kind of go like, you know, Michael McKeon just goes like, they never address it. We never know why it's there. But surely, like, Preston on the day was just like, somebody will see it at some point. It'll be funny. Um. So I think that that's 
that is so interesting because it ties into what we were saying about the relief we're supposed to feel that Sullivan got out, right? That Sullivan was able to find his way home only comes like the uh, the deus ex machina in this film is not uh, some, you know, victorious moment, some like, you know, uh, some Greek uh, play where like God comes down and goes, you were a good warrior, I bless you. No, it is it is a Brechtian thing. It is just that, oh, yay, our hero is saved because he was wealthy enough and yeah. famous enough that they were like, oh, well, I guess you don't get charged with assault then. Yeah, he still beat the brakes off some fucking yeah. guy with a rock. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Like, viciously. It's not even one shot. He's wailing on him. He got a couple shots in, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Clean I mean, shots. That... Clean, just hard-hitting shots. Unbelievable. Sturgis is very... Which, I, which I, I'm in no way, I mean, a guy that upper crust is really going to know how to fight, even with a rock. I think that's a little <laughs> dubious. Um, I, I think he throws a punch at that other guy. He he gets the the shit kicked out. Of here's him. here's the thing, Joel. He throw, McCray, if he throws another punch, at, if he throws a punch at that guy, he gets banned at the Oscars for ten years. <laughs> Joel McRae was a Western star. This is so star. far removed now that he, the ten years is up now, and Will Smith <laughs> is already back at the Oscars. So that joke doesn't even make sense anymore. That see, Will Smith finally came back at the Oscars, and you just hear the glass shatter, and somebody goes, <laughs> "By God, it's Will Smith. He's back." <laughs> um. But in any event, like I, I think that that's that is an interesting point that you raise about the the way that he gets out of it. I think that the other thing too, with this and what what Sturgis really gets at, uh, you know, I think he's doing a lot subtly in this movie. You know, we talked about the way that Act One and Act Two are the screwball comedy. Act Three becomes more realist. Another thing that's worth noting that I, I found so striking about this movie is that for the first two acts, um we only see one non-white face and it is a a black porter who is you know put into a a, a sort of almost like step and fetch it kind of role where like just misfortunes happen to him in a way that we're we're really meant to laugh at and then you get to the conclusion of the film and it's a very interesting thing that Sturgis does, and it, it could only happen because he was in the position that he was in. The screening of the film happens in a black church. Yep. And the audience member, you know, the, the, the parishioners are depicted in a very just sincere and humanistic way, removed of stereotype, which I can tell you, uh, you know, Tom and I now know going through all of these old films, you don't see that much, so it really hits yeah. you in a in a no, you touch don't. <laughs> and the the preacher that the fact that it this movie lets you lets the audience just sit in on this this sermon, a real sincere sermon, and the and the man the preacher um, in the film, his name is Jess Lee Brooks. He was an actor who uh, unfortunately died only a few years after this movie. Jess Lee Brooks, if you only watched the mainstream movies that came out in the 20s and 30s, you would have only seen him in this and uncredited bit parts in The Lost Weekend and Son of Dracula. But in the what they called at the time the race films or the ethnic films, which was the, the industry uh, creating films for black audiences from the 20s to the 40s, um, and not, you know, Oscar Michaud and things like that, he had more substantial roles uh, in things like the sh- um, the Two Gun Man from Harlem or Midnight Shadow or any of these films that are 
you know, that, that were lost to time. Um, to get to see him deliver this speech and this sermon, I think is such a striking thing, especially because we see a white preacher in the movie, but there's music playing over it. And it's just watching him do big motions about hell and damnation. And the speech about mercy and all of that comes from a black preacher in a black church that is willing to allow these prisoners, this chain gang, to come in with them and watch this film so that they can all just feel a moment of relief. I think... But I think there are still concepts of race being played even in that, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think part of this is that this chain gang and Sullivan, who is now part of them, have... He has finally sunk so low on the social strata that he's in a position where even an all-black church pities him, Mm -hmm. which I think would be seen as... You know, uh, you know, black people at that time were seen as very low on the social strata. So to be a rung below them, where the preacher even tells them, don't treat these men poorly. We know they're less they're less fortunate than us, I believe is his yeah. exact words. These are people who are less fortunate than us. And you're like less fortunate than black people in the 40s. That's mighty unfortunate. Yeah. And so that's that's really playing on that idea of this is how low he's sunk, where he yeah, essentially is getting pity from these people who have less than nothing. And you compare that to, I mean, he go, he's, there's a, a scene earlier in the movie where he's at a movie theater and it's a scene where he's looking at all these annoying white people and just being like, Oh, these fucking plebes eating their candy and the kids are being loud little bastards. Like, Oh, and we got to watch that. We got, we got art in front of us and these kids are being just, these whites are being such animals. And then, like you said, he's taken down so many pegs. He's underneath people that quite literally at the era of this movie don't have many rights, can't mm-hmm. vote. Uh, they have to look down upon him as he watches a fucking Disney cartoon, which again, to bring it back to you know how timely and relevant it is, there's a lot of fucking people on Twitter that would look down upon Sullivan for gladly enjoying a Disney cartoon at the worst moments of his life where they would be like, wouldn't you rather be watching Memoria? No, I wouldn't. Yeah. Quite simply, They're I would the cartoon a little bit, though. It wasn't that funny. I mean, uh, uh, excuse me, Playful Pluto is a classic. Thank you very much. I, well, listen. Also, funny. you you spend some time in the box. Anything's going to look good, unless it's yeah. Memoria or First Cow. <laughs> I think that there's something about the choice because I had heard it's not substantiated. But some people suggest that uh, Sturgis originally wanted a Charlie Chaplin film to play instead of the Disney cartoon. I think the Disney cartoon works better for the fact that Chaplin, especially now, Chaplin is viewed as an intellectual filmmaker. Even then, like Chaplin was a guy who was winning, you know, was was winning Oscars and he was making these profound works. You know, I mean, like. At the time this movie comes out, Chaplin is at work on The Great Dictator. He's made some of the greatest films of all time. I think that it being Pluto getting stuck on flypaper. The equivalent at the time of YouTube today. Yeah. I mean, like, essentially, like, if you were making this, you know, a decade later, you know, it's the equivalent of, like, Three Stooges, right? Or or Man getting hit by football. Yeah. And that we're still having debates right now about, like, is animation something to be taken seriously or what have you? the relief that it brings. And I think Tom brought up a great point about um, the movie theater, him going to the, the white movie theater, you know, with the, with the rich woman who's trying to get with him, which has a great bit of foreshadowing because he's at that point 
uh, wearing a dead man's suit. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, everything that befalls him in the third act is because he's wearing a dead man's clothes and a dead man's wearing his. But something about him in the movie theater, he's getting so distressed about any noise that's being made, right? Like anything, you know, the guy making noise and this and that. You know, we're in the temple of cinema, the sanctity of cinema, the, the this and that. And I do think that there's something about, like, how the conversations we're still having about movies where, obviously, there are people who are real uptight about, like, the, the, the temple of cinema, the sanctity of cinema, the, the this and that. And, yeah, okay, I, if you're going to see, like, Phantom Thread, I understand that you want quiet. That's a movie that calls for that. But there's also something that is so beautiful and communal about when Captain America says Avengers Assemble, hearing being part of a crowd losing their shit, or even Tom mentioned Ambulance. I guarantee if you go to see Ambulance and somebody yells, fuck yeah, at a point, and you go, shh, you're the, the, the shitty one there. You know, there yeah. is something about losing yourself to a communal experience that Sullivan is so detached from the common person that he doesn't even know how to experience art like the common person and, and to enjoy something uh, like that. So for him, you know, when everybody's laughing and he turns to the guy next to him and goes, am I laughing right now? Like he's gotten so far removed that he, he doesn't even understand that, that emotion. I think that that's such a great juxtaposition there. Yeah. And I think, I think what this boils down to is that man getting hit by football should have won the Springfield Film Festival. Yeah, yes, and of course. Barney's artsy fartsy video, even though it had heart, as Homer said, man getting <laughs> football on the grind had a football on the grind. And and Homer was right. Well listen, <laughs> I mean, it's kinda kidding, but not really. I mean, in terms of like social impact and communal experience and just effectiveness of hitting its achieved goals. Uh, Jackass Forever is going to be one of the best movies of the year, no matter what mm-hmm. fucking bullshit. Made me cry. Neon yeah. comes out. Made me cry too when they mm-hmm. when that guy grabbed hold of Johnny Knoxville when his life was on the line with that fucking spider. I was like, man, I felt that. Yeah, I, uh, I feel that shit. Poor Dark Star. It's <laughs> Dark Shark. Dark Shark. Dark Shark. Dark Shark. But I I think that there's something, you know, because Sturgis made smart films he made satirical films you know uh, throughout his career everything uh even after this you know things like the palm beach story uh miracle at morgan's creek uh are all classics you know the lady eve is very um is a very smart comedy but he also understands that that dumb things can be funny and have value as well right that it's not all about who can come up with the cleverest joke um the lady eve have either of you guys seen the lady eve no. Uh, not yet. So the, the, the premise is essentially there's a, there's a con artist woman played by Barbara Stanwyck, and there is a rich dope played by Henry Fonda. And her plan is to seduce Henry Fonda and get his money. And the beauty of this movie is that Henry Fonda is an idiot for 90 <laughs> minutes. And I mean that sincerely. Like, there's never that point that we would do in a modern film where it tries to, like, where he gets his feelings hurt, and you're like, oh, he's a person. Oh, he's a dope for 90 fucking minutes. And it works. And it it lands. And I think that what's great about that is, is that you can do that joke. You can have somebody just be an idiot, because we all know people who are just kind of idiots. You can have a movie about, you know, uh, that features the depictions of the, the poor and underprivileged, where a guy is still just 
stealing money because he's a greedy asshole. Like, you can yeah. do that. I think that what Sullivan's Travels really gets at, in a way, is that in an effort to be understanding, people of privilege and artists can instead be condescending. That all yeah. of Sullivan's visions of how the poor and underprivileged are are oversimplified, condescending, you know, uh, like I said, the, the quiet dignity of the poors. That he thinks there's some dignity in it or something admirable. And like the butler tells him, like, no, it's just a thing you want to get out of. Yeah. And by the time he actually achieves, you know, actually lives that life, he doesn't want to fucking make art out of it anymore. It's yeah. like, no, it, that shit sucks. Like, why would I, why would I want to do that? No, we're going to keep making, we're going to make things to make people laugh. There's, there is inherent value in giving people, an escape. Uh, and Veronica Lake's kind of mad at him when she first finds out. It mm. it would have been nice had she stayed mad at him long. Like, <laughs> you're a rich guy, you have everything, and you want to be a jerk and pretend to be poor. And, and you know, why when this is the life you have? But, I mean, she's also kind of quickly seduced. And uh, and I think she kind of sees a, a path to an easy life for herself. So I think she's and, more forgiving than maybe she needs to be. And, but. you know, she's an actress. She probably finds something a little seductive about doing, like, the method thing. Like, ooh, like, this will be fun. I could use this for my performances. It's like, okay, okay, girl. Well, well, and I think that there's something, easy. she has that great bit up top. And also, let's just single out, I, I don't want to do too much, but let's just single out Veronica Lake in this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was she was young and fairly untested. At that she's only 19 when she's doing this. Yeah, this is like her one of her first major features. Yeah, at the time, nobody was sure how she could handle dialogue. I mean, you know that the famous story is that she was uh, she was doing her screen test. She leaned over to talk to the director, and a hair fell in front of her eye, and they were like, "There we go, that's it, that's yeah, your thing." Look, yeah, that's her look for the rest of the time. Um, hair, yeah, the, yes, which she ended up having to like hide for the war, uh, which is one of the craziest things. But she kills this dialogue. She crushes it, and there's that oh. great. I was going to say, yeah, she. I think she steals the scene. Yeah. She's like the Zendaya of the 40s. Yeah, yeah. She's so good at that sardonic wry, uh, you know, she's like she's like Mary Jane in Spider-Man. So, but, but like, she's got that just, just, I'm over everything you're saying. I'm much smarter than you. And yeah, just, just dripping with wry humor. And that great moment, you know, because um, Joel McRae talked about, I was listening to an interview with him. Because McRae, he had done some Hitchcock films, so he's certainly done some films, but... Foreign he, correspondent. Yes. Yep. And he had... But he was mostly a Western guy, and he talked about a lot of directors and writers write lines that look good on the page, but they don't think about how they sound. But that Sturgis wrote lines like a symphony. And just listening to the way that Veronica like, Veronica, like delivers that bit about, you know, I'm so glad you're poor, because if you were a producer, I'd be staring at the back of your molars going, oh, isn't that so funny? Oh, this and that. Oh, that's my knee, sir, and all that. Yeah. Which is just acknowledging Hollywood creeps up top, which is A+. plus. But that's the thing. I think she turned... The interesting thing is she turns on him, not even because he's faking being poor. I mean, that's part of it. But I think the big thing is once it's clear that he's not some poor schmo, she realizes that the balance of power has shifted in a way that it can't come back from. So I don't even know if it's so much as her being like, you did a bad thing. It was just having to recalibrate because she isn't born into privilege. She understands when you have to shift gears and how you have to approach things differently. And the thing that Sullivan discovers throughout this film is the inherent skill he's lacking 
is understanding how to how to switch, how to code switch, how to how to adjust to different scenarios. He's so used to getting his way. Whereas even his butlers, when trying to tell him this is fucked up, they still have to do the Sir, if I may, I don't find that to be a particularly good idea. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's and that's not how they talk to each other, per se, but it's just they, it, it reminds me of a, a film we're going to do later this season, which is Ninochka. The The main guy is talking to his butler after being inspired by all the socialist philosophy of Ninochka, and he's going like, well, wouldn't you want to be equal to me? Wouldn't you want to slap me in the face? And the guy's just like, I, man, I just want to go home at the end of the day. You yeah. know, he's like, I got a job to do. I do my job. I go I go home. That's that's how that works. Like, I don't know. I've been man. stealing your silverware secretly, you know? <laughs> but he's just like, it's very much like, he's like, I don't think about it. I don't care. I don't have the time to sit back and read these books and think about philosophy. I don't ca- I don't care. That's kind of the best thing about this. You know, that, that quote where Sturgis is talking about uh, telling him to leave the preaching to the preachers and making too many deep dishes and all that. Like, there is that element of, I don't think that Sturgis is inherently, he's not condemning any political ideology. He is just saying, like, who the fuck are we to do this? You know, like he's kind of looking at all the guys who are making their message movies and going like, shut the, you know, like I love Charlie Chaplin, but a lot of Charlie Chaplin's contemporaries called him um, a swimming pool socialist because he made all of these films about the importance of the common man, but then also had multiple estates. You know, he was very much kind and people were, you know, people in the industry were kind of like, why are you coming in and talking shit at me about what I do when you're not doing anything more, you know, like, and they have that scene where Veronica Lake is, is like, well, where's the swimming pool? Yes. And and he has a big, a big ass swimming pool. Yeah. I think that it's just, I, I, this is very much a movie about, uh, as as the young folks say now about checking your privilege and recognizing your privilege, which Sullivan, the producers chew him out for that up top. The producers yeah. who are his bosses, right? Inherently, you know, are in charge, are sitting there and going, okay, when I was 12, I was delivering newspapers. What were you doing? I was in boarding school. Okay, well, when I was working in a butcher but shop. But they are lying. Yes. Well, so but, They admit that they're lying. They're just as privileged as he is. Yes. But I'm saying, like, there is that igno- but, there is acknowledgement up top of, like, just remember who you are. They at least have the self-awareness to know that, okay, well, you, sh- you shouldn't be doing this. You're not made for this. You're a, you're, you're a soft, you're a soft little boy. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> do this. Like, just, just, just pump your brakes a bit, pal. I mean, this, I mean, it, it's, it's more than check your privilege. It's what me and Mike talk about all the time. It's about that theory isn't reality that you could say one thing you could think one thing and because you read it in a book or because oh well you hear about these things but uh, once you get in the muck of it the beauty of being poor kind of gets thrown out the window and you're kind of just hoping to eat that day yeah i it's about it's and it's about the messaging it's about how you reach people i mean you know, i i um i remember once uh not to get too into the weeds of anything in, in one way or the other but i just remember once like what i was watching some video somebody posted on facebook back when i still went on facebook this was around like 2016 and it was somebody talking about like you know if we could just get this message out to more people i think it's going to swing the election i think it's going to do xyz and i start watching it and somebody just goes starts it off by going no but i mean if you think about the tenants laid out in gramsci's prison diaries and immediately i was like yeah that'll win them you got it 
that is really going to hit people where they live. And it's like, that's the thing about Sullivan is he's, he shows them this European art and is saying like, you know, well, well, it, it got five weeks here. And they tell him like, it's not playing in Pittsburgh. Like it, they don't care about it there. It's not just about, you know, him maybe not being the right person. Ever. It's just not understanding the medium. It's not understanding that being right doesn't matter if you can't actually get anybody to see where you're at or or to actually connect with the message you're saying, which I think is a real relevant conversation now um, when we talk about film and not even just in the political, political or socioeconomic sense. But I mean, how often, I mean, again, man, you deal with this on your show constantly, uh, you know, where you've been in a situation where somebody kind of will argue about a film and go, yeah, but don't you understand it's about X, Y, and Z, and you or somebody else will kind of counter with, but it's not good. Yeah. It's, it did not do this well. It doesn't yeah, matter no. what it's about, right? Yeah, sometimes there'll be well, there'll be a reach for subtext, and you can kind of see it there, but it, you know, if the movie doesn't get it across to most of the viewers, then it, it, it's not going to matter. Yeah, which I think is maybe, I, I think the beauty of what Sturgis gets across, too, is you can probably find something you can do to move people or inspire people, even if you're making Ants in Your Plants of 1941, which is the title of the film they pitch him. It's one of my favorite little gags, because you hear it at first and think they're saying Ants in Your Pants, but they're saying Ants in Your Plants, which is an even dumber title. Yeah, that is true. It is like a multi-layered... Ants in Your Plants, 1936. Well, that's it. It's, it... well, yeah, he made 1939, he made Ants in Your Pants. Yeah, Ants in Your Plants. That one was plants too. Yeah, I believe it's an L both times. Okay, I, I'll, I'll believe that. I mean, listen, listeners, reach out to us. Uh, t- let us know. Tag us all. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that that's such an interesting element, and also a little thing, but it's worth acknowledging about what I love in this is that they use real names. There's so many times where you watch like Hollywood satires or anything like that, whether it's like a Hail Caesar or what have you. And they just like they make up fake industry types. There is something about Preston Sturgis mentioning Ernst Lubitsch, who yeah. had previously like run the roost at Paramount before he got there. And like specifically mentioning like, what's that guy's name? Lubitsch. Yeah, Lubitsch. Mentioning Bob Hope and Bing Crosby and all of that. It's not mm-hmm. it, it's not this thing where it's like, oh, we're doing a parody of vapid Hollywood, whatever. Like, no, you're, you're specifically using those names kind of plants it in that moment in a way you know which i thought was was a very kind of cool little thing that Sturgis does well it gives it a reality it it it, it gives you something to latch on to and realize that this is something real that we're not completely making something up that there's something like we know what we're doing and we we you can trust us to know what we're talking about by having these things for you to latch on to instead of like you said making up names and other than some great titles uh it doesn't have to make up much this movie is so smartly layered uh in a lot of ways i mean you know it's pulling from little things even the uh the the outfit on veronica lake is satire um there was a 1928 movie uh, i believe a dramatic film though i've not watched it myself uh called beggar of life with Louise is this Brooks. when she's a tramp or yes, when she's the tramp out in the diner? Okay, the the the, hat, the page boy hat and the jacket and all that. Mm-hmm. That is, it's it's kind of lampooning uh, beggar of life. It really awoken something in me, though. <laughs> the, I liked that outfit. Well, that is lot. that is one of those cases where, like, 
it's this is another thing that's so funny is the movie was marketed. The studio didn't know how to market this because how the fuck do you market this movie? So originally, the posters, like the Criterion shows the two of them in their beggar clothes and all that. The original poster the was just her, her painted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The painting, and it and it got in. It was named one of the best posters. Yeah, two of all time, two in the list, which I I thought was kind of weird because I'm like, I mean, maybe one of the best posters of the '40s, but I mean, not better than Jurassic Park. Come on, <laughs> um, but but it's it goes back to what Sullivan says at the beginning. I want to make all these pictures of drama and sex. Okay, yes, a little bit of sex, you know. And they say that several times, and I think that's exactly you know one of the reasons Lake is there, and one of the reasons they. They put her on the poster. Yeah, and I think that it's great because you see the poster, and a lot of guys were probably going in going, ah, va-va-voom, I can see Veronica Lake. And then uh, what happens? She's in a page boy outfit for a chunk of the film. Still looked good. Uh, well, I mean, listen, it's Veronica Lake. Uh, but it's it's interesting because he has this producer that he skewers in this movie, the guy who keeps saying, put a little sex in it, right? A little sexy, a little mm-hmm. sex in it. When Sturgis stopped working for Paramount, because he, he worked for Paramount all the way through Hail the Conquering Hero and, and all the films. And then he stops working for Paramount. He decides he's going to set out on his own. Anybody here want to guess what independent producer he takes on as his producing partner? Mm. Roger Gen- Corman. Gentleman named Howard Hughes. And oh, okay. I know, I know that. Everybody too. basically told him, don't partner with Howard Hughes. He's just going to want to cheap you on the movie and put a bunch of sexy ladies in it. He's going to be... And Howard Hughes is ultimately the guy that he made fun of in... He didn't know it at the time, but the producer that he's lampooning in uh, in Sullivan's with the, you know, that is going, I want it to be a document with sex in it. With sex in it. How about a musical? That was Howard Hughes. Yeah. Howard and, and Hughes screwed him. Um, we talked about it actually on a previous episode. It's not out yet, but it will be by the time this comes out. Preston Sturgis's first film outside of Paramount was trying to, he got Harold Lloyd, the silent comedian, out of retirement to make a sequel to 1925's The Freshman. The sophomore. The sins of Harold. Well, you, I wish. <laughs> I wish. In- this opportunity. Instead, it just opens with the football game from The Freshman, and then it's like, and 30 years later, he's working in an office. And it's like, all right. And Harold Lloyd is attempting to navigate Preston Sturgis' dialogue because, you know, who's a great choice to deliver crackling dialogue? A silent film icon. Silent film stars, yeah. Nailing it. Uh, It's a terrible film. But it is just interesting in a way when you look at Sturgis, because Sturgis was, for a while, like the, the great American director. You know, he was he was making just hit after hit after hit. Sullivan's Travels, his third directorial feature, or maybe fourth, I don't remember which came out first, this or The Lady Eve. But either way, like he makes a movie that is essentially about a, a director who lets his own kind of ego almost destroy him. And then ultimately, he kind of fucks himself in, in a similar way. He gets too caught up in what he wants to do and the things he wants to say. And I think he makes this movie called The Great Invention about the invention of anesthesia, which is largely a drama, but also has comedy moments. And the studio was so baffled by this thing, they buried it for like two years. Well, it put all the audience to sleep. <laughs> but, uh, and I think they release it like shortly after The Sins of Harold Diddlebach came out and bombed, and that also bombed. Because he was such a smug prick to a lot of people at that point that they wanted to bury him. 
Uh, so they just like hit bomb after bomb, and it just kind of it wrecked him. Uh, which I just think is such an interesting element of this in a way that he makes this movie about kind of understanding, you know, your place in the industry and your place in Hollywood and then maybe misses the mark himself as time goes on. Uh, I did just want to raise one other thing. I forgot to mention this before, which is we were talking about the scene in the in the in the in the black church. And uh, after the film came out, the secretary of the NAACP at the time, Walter White. Uh, wrote a letter to Sturgis, uh, and it said, I want to congratulate and thank you for the church sequence in Sullivan's Travels. This is one of the most moving scenes I have seen in a moving picture for a long time, but I'm particularly grateful to you as our member, uh, as are a number of my friends, white and colored, for the dignified and decent treatment of Negroes in this scene. I was in Hollywood recently and am to return uh, there soon for conferences with production heads, writers, directors, actors, and actresses in order to induce broader and more decent picturizations of the Negro instead of limiting him to menial or comic roles. The sequence in Sullivan's Travels is a step in that direction, and I want you to know how grateful we are. Now, of course, one of the films that he would be consult Walter White would be consulting in around that time is, of course, Song of the South. So maybe didn't quite, Sullivan's didn't quite have the impact that he was hoping, but nevertheless, <laughs> I thought that was important to note that 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 moment was recognized for what it was at the time. Uh, I think that's that's just um, that's great. Yeah, but it's interesting that it does it does have the other you know that we did talk about the other black character earlier in the beginning. Yes, um, but it is within Hollywood, so it's it's as much lampooning and spoofing those stereotypes of those performances. Um, everything they do in Hollywood is is not quite the real world. And I also think like Sturgis probably couldn't have a line in the movie where somebody explicitly goes like. Hey, you're so worried about the treatment of the common man, and yet you're letting this guy get treated like shit in your own studio. Mm-hmm. But I do think that that ending scene does kind of bring that home a little bit and remind you of the idea. If you're looking for it, you know, seeing that idea of like, right, Sullivan is talking about all these high ideals about how he's going to make him, you know, oh brother, where art thou? About the common man, which we never brought up that that's the title uh, that that of the film and it's not a, it's not a yeah it's not a real book either which is interesting no. because of all the real world filmmakers they name drop but they don't choose a real world book no so we we have no idea what oh brother we're thou is about yeah or if it's any good it it could be just a message you know and yeah. that's not a, but i i think that it's so interesting that he's doing a brother where art thou and he's talking all this big talk he never once said a thing about any non-white person or their treatment like it doesn't even occur to him you know, yeah, uh, which I I have to imagine Sturgis uh, was at least a little bit intentional with. Only other thing I want to note before we we bring the the plane in for a landing, uh, episode twenty three of Batman the Animated Series is a take on Sullivan's travels. Not kidding. There's an episode. Bruce Wayne goes undercover at a hobo encampment, gets mugged at a train station. Somebody steals his clothes. Everybody thinks Loses Bruce Wayne is dead. Yes, that is. They just uh, do the third act of Sullivan's Travels. Malone, uh, Matstick Malone. Yes, Is that his name. Yes, yes. Matstick Malone. Great yes. pull, excellent pull. Uh, wow, wow, hell yeah! I remember hell that yeah. episode. Yep, yep. Crazy. You think this movie is a is a little dig at Great Tariff? I don't know if it's a dig. I don't. I I don't know if it's. Hmm. It's interesting because I do think that part of that is that Steinbeck did kind of know that world. I, I don't know if it's a dig at Grapes of Wrath. I think it is a dig at the people who went to see and praised Grapes of Wrath in Hollywood. Or the filmmakers who made it more than the the author who wrote it. Well, just yeah, because I mean, a year this is a year after and movies were kind of quickly made back then, so it felt like 
you know, Grapes of Wrath was like the big movie in 1940 at the Oscars and everything. So like Preston Surge is probably like looking at that and like, John Ford, you make you make fun movies. What what is this bullshit? You're trying to preach to me about being homeless, you you one-eyed freak. <laughs> I don't know if he said that. No, it was verbatim. I, re- I read the transcript. He called him a one-eyed oh. freak. <laughs> and, that, and that was the first big fight at the Oscars. It was there in 1941. Hands were thrown way back I then. Was, I gotta tell you, if Preston Sturgis picked a fight with John Ford, Preston Sturgis is not living to make the Palm Beach story. I'm just <laughs> gonna say it. No offense, Preston. You're not making it out of a fight with John Ford. Well, John Ford cartwheel kicked him right off the stage. <laughs> and John Wayne then went, I would have fought him. But I've, I've got <laughs> a security, I did, thing. but I would have. I totally would have. I've, 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 I've got, got a, a knee I, thing. I've got a knee thing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's real bad, man. It's real bad. So with that, let's talk about uh, the Oscars. If you haven't already looked it up, I do want to ask at, at least to Tom and Maynard if you didn't uh, look it up ahead of time. Uh, Tom Maynard, how many nominations do you think this? Like, where? What do you think this film was nominated for? What do you think it won? How do you think it fared at the Academy Awards? I haven't looked it up. I've got, um, but considering I haven't, cool. Don't think I haven't heard of it. I, I wouldn't be surprised if if, if it wasn't really nominated for anything. I mean, I, if I was nominating it. But of course, I haven't seen everything it would have been competing against. I would certainly have nominated McRae and Lake for their performances, um, especially Lake. Um, and I don't even think they did cinematography back then either. Uh, but but I, I'm sure it did. They did. It, it, they did. Okay, they were finally doing it. Yes, I know. I know they. I I know that some of the older ones they don't do a lot of the technical stuff. Right, like King Kong was robbed. Uh, but no, there's no time for that right now. Um, but yeah, I bet it may, it probably didn't get screenplay. It probably didn't get best picture or anything. It, it probably just got some for performance. Tom, what do you think? Uh, I would, I would probably guess that it would get the kind of typical, almost like a citizen Kane kind of reception of like, we'll give it a best picture nom and we'll give it a writing nom. And that's kind of about it. And everyone just knows like, Oh yeah, they're just giving it these nominations, but we know it, it's not going anywhere. But uh, that's pretty—I think probably just those two. Very interesting. You you evoke Citizen Kane, Tom. This was the same Oscars as Citizen Kane. Yeah, Mayard, you nailed it. Hey. Insofar as it was completely shut out. Okay, that's all right. got nominated for absolutely nothing. The best picture nominees that year were Blossoms in the Dust, of course, Citizen Kane, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, Hold Back the Dawn. The Little Foxes, The Maltese Falcon, One Foot in Heaven, Sergeant York, Suspicion, and the winner, First How Green Was My Valley. Wait, Um, Suspicion? The Alfred Hitchcock movie? Correct. That movie fucking sucks. What the fuck? Suspicion? (laughs) Oh my god. I only laugh, Tom, because that is the second time this season that you go verbatim. Wait, Blank was nominated? That movie fucking sucks in that exact tone. It fucking You've done that sucks. Twice so far this season. It's so bad. Anyway, it is worth noting. However, I do I do want to note that because this is the same year as the Lady Eve, another Preston Sturges film, the Lady Eve did get a nomination for best original story, which was a category back then. Mm. However, it lost to Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Here comes Mr. Jordan. Stor- Sturges had already won an Oscar because his very d- first uh, directorial film. 
The Great McGinty, which he also wrote, did win a screenplay Oscar. So Sturgis had already been honored that way. But yeah, Sullivan's Travels completely shut out at the Academy Awards uh, that year. I would have to imagine, were they doing it again, uh, go a little differently, especially because now this didn't do great when it first came out. It, it did okay. But now it is, I think, widely considered Sturgis's uh, best work and naturally was inducted in the second year of the registry. Maynard, thank you so much for, for coming on for this. Thank you so much for, for taking a shot with a film you haven't seen. I, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I did enjoy it. And now I have to go watch all of uh, all of Veronica Lake's movies. I've got to watch all her film, like femme fatale movies now, too. No, no, you got to watch them all. I want you to go all the way up to 1970s Flesh Feast. I actually was looking at Flesh Feast. I just, <laughs> I'm afraid it's not going to be the kind of flesh that I'll want to see feast what's, it. Um, what's great about this is that uh, when I said, when I told Tom, like, you know, you were coming on, I was like, I think this, you know, we don't have to worry too much. Like, I feel like that's a kindred spirit kind of thing. The fact that you've already pulled out Matchstick Malone. Oh, yeah. And said that you two were considering watching Flesh Feast like we were talking about. <laughs> I was. I'm very happy that all worked out. I really did think um, about it. And I may, maybe I'll go check out the Sturgis guy's stuff. But it does yeah. make me want, definitely want to watch, rewatch Foreign Correspondent, too. Yes, yes. Well, Joel McRae. That, that should be noted. Uh, Joel McRae, Foreign Correspondent. Joel McRae, mainly a Westerner, did re-team with Veronica Lake in 1947 for a Western called Ramrod. Just wanted to make sure I got that in there. Right, you should also so check out uh, Joel McRae did a... Flesh Feast, Ramrod, kind of a <laughs> theme Joel, going on here. Joel McRae was also in the first uh, Sam Peckinpah movie, Ride the High Country. Yes. yes with yes, uh, yes. Randolph Scott. Great movie. You can kind of see uh, where Peckinpah was going without it being as viciously brutal and nihilistic it's like hey what if bud bedeker was sadder yeah i mean mccray's in he's in like a hundred movies i think he's he's very prolific um but i was yeah so i'm, I'm glad you came up with this and, and as i was saying you know kindred spirits uh in a lot of ways which is a great argument that if people listen to this show and like this show uh i'm sure this is demonstrated uh reels of justice is also uh something that should be very up folks alley um, I know you talked about it a bit up top, Mayor, but do you want to talk a little more about Reels of Justice, about stuff you guys have got coming up, or just the the uh, center of that Venn diagram between our two shows? Oh, yeah. Um, so, like I said, uh, Reels of Justice is uh, it's sort of a mock courtroom where uh, we have four regular hosts that include ourselves. And so we will take uh, kind of we'll kind of alternate between being. Uh, a representative of the film like in a mock court so either prosecutor or defense and every week we have a guest come on um whether they're a creator themselves with you know a podcasters we have a lot of them but we've had um some great uh actors and directors on you know we've had kirk thatcher um who is big into the muppet movies and and star trek um larry blameyer um we've had a lot of people from mystery science theater 3000 on so we get a lot of really fun and cool guests to come on and play along with us and basically, usually the guest picks a movie. Uh, they take a side, defense uh, or prosecution, and we just take the other side. Uh, and we have to convince uh, the other three who make up the jury to vote the movie guilty of being a bad movie. So that's what's important. We have to convince them that it's a bad movie. Um, so that's kind of a low bar. Uh, so if it's a mediocre movie, it may get off. Um, and that's actually where things tend to get interesting, where you're like, where we're like, this movie's so inoffensive, I can't even say it's bad. It's just forgettable and bland. And sometimes it'll get off based on that. 
Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a fun way to look at a film because if you've, you know, if you have to start watching a movie where you're like, that's a great movie, what could I possibly think to say bad about this movie? And then you watch it and you're like, okay, actually this movie's really bad. I, you know, I forgot, you know, like you just mentally in my head, Twister holds a high place in my head. And then you watch Twister and you're like, this sucks. <laughs> um, and, uh, and you get to, you know, bring up all the points about weather <laughs> that they got wrong. Um, or you have to look at a movie where you're like, how do I defend, uh, you know, how do I defend Octopussy? You know, how do I defend Glenn or Glenda? Uh, you know, like what, what can I possibly say in that film's defense? Um, so it makes you look at, it forces you to watch the movie from a completely different perspective. And, uh, and in many ways has ruined, uh, many movies that I've enjoyed. Um, but I mean, you know, you have to come on and defend Wild Wild West, which is to me like Twister in my head. I'm like, oh, Wild Wild West. Uh, which did not bring me the rodeo cheeseburger. It turns out that was Small Soldiers. <laughs> yeah. But yep. uh, Wild Wild West, that's a fun movie. Then you watch it and you're like, oh, no, no, I want to pull my teeth out. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was – and I've listened to your show. The one thing I didn't know about the way your show works, because we, you know, in our show, like, to pull back the curtain a bit, the part where uh, Kyle asks a question up top or the part where Tom and I do a registry pick, we record those separately. Right, just to save time for people, so people aren't sitting around. You know, here's I was under the assumption that the people prosecuting or defending a film don't hear the jury. Yeah, Sp- spoilers for everyone. You do. Yes, we make you sit there and listen. <laughs> so, so you're just I'm, so I'm just sitting there hearing the debates around, like, uh, you know, and especially for that one. Is it? I think it's Ryan who really hated it, right? Am I wrong? Was it Ryan? Almost certainly. Really that, that's what I think is interesting on the four of us. Uh, we just did Hudson Hawk by the time. This, that's what just released this week, yeah. which is one of the rare movies that we all agreed on. And that almost never happens because we are we look for completely different things in film. You know, Ryan really likes, uh, you know, art things. And, like, you know, Dylan really likes, like, Charlie Bronson movies. You know, my favorite stuff is Godzilla, Suitmation, or Harryhausen, Stop Motion. You know, I like action. I like adventure. Um, Ben likes a lot of foreign films, a lot of Japanese stuff. So to get us all on the same page where we see the same things in the same movie practically never happens. Um, uh, And I think we have our breakdown, actually. We were looking at it recently. Guests win about half the time, and the film is found guilty about half the time. Like, right around, right around, it's very even, so... Uh, it, it's an interesting way it shakes out. I'll just say anybody out there who may be going on Reels of Justice, you know, if Tom ever ends up on the show, if anybody listening ever ends up on one word of advice, do not break the format of the show by calling a witness for which you <laughs> yourself do the voice. No, you and when you... when one of the hosts tells you, please stop, you choose instead to do it again, not only later, but after the trial portion is done and you're supposed to stop doing bits. That was great. But I didn't know if you knew that uh, I've done that uh, several times. I was uh, I was Mario. OK. In our Super Mario Brothers case. I have not heard that um, one. Okay. Prosec- and, uh, on the prosecution side, Mario, the cartoon, the, the video game character did not like the movie. Uh, <laughs> and I was also the Duke in the Babadook. Um and so I, I, but the Babadook comes out kind of blah, blah, and then clears his throat and speaks in a completely clear, like British accent. And so, so we, we've done it before. Absolutely. 
maybe maybe Kenneth Branagh wasn't the right pick for that time. But no, that was completely in line. Every inter- at the end of every case, we do a, a people's court style interview, right? Outside. Yeah. It's always raining outside the courtroom. It's an important mm-hmm. thing to know. It's constantly raining outside the reels of justice. And and the courtroom is built on movie hell, too. That's also important. There's a door to movie hell that the courtroom happens to be built on. Uh, just quirks about the fake courtroom that we have. Uh, but we always do silly voices when we interview, right? I mean, we've we've yeah. done Charlie Bronson, as we mentioned. Um, uh, we have a, a retinue of extremely offensive Italian gangster stereotypes, um that that we we're constantly bringing on and are usually end up That's shooting fine. each other we're we're co-hosted by an offensive italian stereotype so it's fine I oh what the fuck does that mean <laughs> oh oh what the hell you're coming at my boy all wrong yeah fucking busting my balls try it again busting my gobble over here you son of a bitch uh, so, so part of that uh if you hear and this is kind of a running joke is ever since our first italian stereotype interviewer uh, he came from the Gabagool Gazette, and yes. since then, yep. every single person, no matter what their silly voice is, they are from the Gabagool Gazette. Um, I, I got an old prospector. It's a good yes. publication. But from, got, <laughs> but from the Gabagool Gazette. From the Gabagool Gazette. Uh, I believe they told me, there's gold in this here courthouse, yes. to which I said, there may have been gold in the courthouse, but everyone missed the gold up on screen. Yes. Uh, oh, and we had Vincent Price one time, but he was from the Gabagool Gazette, um, which was fantastic. Um, <laughs> so, folks, check out Reels of Justice. It's it's thoroughly uh, it's thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, you know, um, yes. there are some great episodes of it. Everybody, know, listen can... to Reels of Justice, but also do me a personal favor. Sorry to do this. Don't don't, don't listen to the Wild Wild West episode. We need to end this bit now. I need him to stop with this deliberately listen to every other episode yeah listen to every other episode twice i mean maybe listen to the wild wild west episode and that may put the debate to an end about whether the movie deserves to be redeemed or not i need i need this bit to end otherwise i swear to god i am going (laughs) to go to mike's house and i'm going to give him a fucking Charlie horse that he will never recover from. So Maynard, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody else stick around. We'll be right back with our picks for the national film registry. First cow 2023. (laughs) (laughs) The national film registry isn't some fixed object frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Maltin, and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration, on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. Okay, so with this one, um, I didn't want to go with the Hollywood movie-making aspect or anything like that. I wanted to go with something along the lines of the kind of movies that Sullivan himself would like look down upon. Oh, it's frivolous entertainment. It doesn't say anything about the human condition or blah, 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 whatever these 
pretentious, you know, A24 fucks like to talk about. Um, I wanted to go with something that I think is an an unabashed masterpiece that ultimately amounts to a hill of beans. It 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 has nothing to say other than let's have some goddamn fun. Like I might even be generous saying there's not a thought in its head. It might be more accurate to say it has l- negative thoughts in its head. It is one of the great shit kicker classics. A movie that somehow gave Star Wars a run for its money at the box office in 1977. That's right, folks. I'm saying Smokey and the Bandit needs to be put in the National Film Registry. Because I do genuinely believe, one, it's Burt Reynolds' best movie. And that man was an one of the biggest stars of the 70s. You can't talk about the history of cinema without Burt Reynolds in it. Two, it was a gigantic hit. Like, one, like insane kind of hit like you look at the box office and you go wow how the fuck did a movie where fucking burt reynolds bootleg cores across state lines as he's being chased by jackie gleason as a racist wife-beating sheriff called buford t justice it's got one i mean it's got one of the legit one of the great songs of all time one of the great songs to come out of a movie eastbound and down it is my ringtone there is something to be said. This is a discussion me and Mike have had uh, since I got into Yellowstone this year, that there is like a, a dearth of storytelling about middle America these days. And that you, didn't used to be the case. Uh, Smokey and the Bandit made so much money because there was a lot of movies like this at the time, but this one just stood out from the pack and the people that this was made for really took to it. And uh, it, it's the end point of, joe bob's uh tour that he does where he uh called uh how redneck saved hollywood uh and he makes a good point this is like smoking the band is like the last redneck movie that was ever like really respected or made any sort of money that had any sort of lasting impact and i think this is the kind of movie that if uh you know preston sturgis not Preston sturgis if sullivan had the quote-unquote misfortune of making instead of his artsy movies about the pores this is the kind of movie he would end up at the end in prison being like oh fuck i made smoking the bandit that shit rules. So yeah, uh, I'm I'm putting up Smokey and the Bandit. I think it is a perfect five out of five goddamn masterpiece that has nothing to say. It is the dumbest movie in the world, and I fucking love it. So I actually had uh, a number of options in place in case Tom had picked a film that I had considered. There's a film that I had in mind for this episode, and I had some backups planned, but. Uh, suffice to say, Tom did not pick the film that I had in mind, so <laughs> there will be times in the future for me to uh, nominate Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which of course would make sense because of the title connection. There will be times in the future for me to nominate Adaptation, uh, which obviously I think is a you know a strong line between that and this. Um, instead, uh, it will not surprise anybody that I am going to pick. Tom makes jokes sometimes that I pick documentaries a lot or, you know, some obscure things. And yes, I am going to a, a documentary with this. Um, I'm looking at a, a, a documentary film from 2006. Tom has often talked about, uh, or was talking about with Smokey the Bandit, Tom talked about how the film does not have a thought in its head. This film uh, and and the series of films was thought of, I think, when it was first released to not have a thought in its head. And I think it's interesting to watch the trajectory of this franchise, because uh, it is a franchise trajectory, because the first film 
received uh, 49% on Rotten Tomatoes, if you look at the aggregate. Uh, the most recent installation uh, drew rave reviews. For posterity's sake, it would make sense for me to pick the first film in this series. Uh, I think the best one is the second film. And so I want to enshrine uh, the second one. I want to acknowledge that because I think it is the best one, particularly because it's got a very moving conclusion. Um, I'm sorry to be so dry about this, but there's no way to really have fun with this one. So anyway, my uh, nomination for the National Film Registry is Jackass Number 2, directed by Jeff Tremaine. Hell yeah! <laughs> it was originally Jackass the movie, which I think is obviously the, the, the more likely choice if anything got in. But 2 is just the better film because of that final musical number, The Best of Times is Now. I think they finally figured out what to do in the cinematic medium. I saw Jackass Forever in the theaters. It was like a, a, you know, it was a cinematic experience. And Sullivan's Travels is all about understanding what can bring us joy and watching Pluto get stuck to fly paper. And ultimately the cup test is the, is, is akin to Pluto getting stuck to the fly paper. Right. Um, and the prank played on danger. Aaron with the taxi is masterful. It is so goddamn funny. Every time it is truly an understanding of what they could do with the cinematic medium. It shouldn't work as movies. Jackass shouldn't even work as a TV show, but it definitely shouldn't work as movies. The a way that this franchise has gone from a movie that was considered the you know the first film, which was treated like it was the death of civilization, to the newest film playing at the Museum of the Moving Image and being hailed, you know, and Johnny Knoxville being profiled in all these high quality magazines. So it just it's it says a lot. I'm going with number two because I think it's the best in the franchise. I'm fine with number one getting in. Fine with any of them. But but uh, yes, Jackass number two is my pick for the Library of Congress's National Film Registry. And a reminder to our listeners, even though we said it at the start of this segment, we are at the end of the season sending the list of these titles in. So I need you all to understand there will be a list that says Smokey and the Bandit and Jackass number two being sent to the Library of Congress. You're welcome, everyone. Thank you again to Maynard Bangs for joining us. Next week, we look at one of the most prominent films of Catherine Hepburn's career. Ryan Luis Rodriguez from The Coolness Chronicles joins us for Bringing a Baby. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Registry.